You don't have your money. You don't have your possessions. You manage God's money, and you manage God's possessions. And what a great privilege. A number of times in the Scripture, we see that he who is faithful in little is granted the responsibility of being faithful in much. And the area of money, in particular, is a difficult subject, not because it's difficult from the basis of Scripture, but primarily because of the American and especially the unbelieving American mindset that I worked for it, I earned it, it's mine, I'll do with it what I want, and maybe if I have a little bit left over, I'll do something else that maybe the Lord might, you know, have a need for. Get this down in your heart. God has no needs. He does not need you because of some unfulfilled interest in his heart to do anything. The need is what God has prescribed in Scripture, and the need is yours and mine. And that is to store up treasure in heaven. Not a bad idea for you and me to do an assessment of the storage of our treasures. Not a bad idea to look over the budget, to look over the last years or the last 10 years worth of spending, the last 10 years or 20 or 50 years worth of collecting goods and asking ourselves, how much, not a bad idea, how much have I stored up in my garage versus heaven? Not a bad idea. It's also not a bad idea to get some help in doing that. That you would invite the body into every area of your life, not just the matters of discipleship that everyone can see. But maybe especially the areas that no man can see, or maybe most men and women can't see. Think of it. It's far easier to hide the condition of your heart with regard to your conduct that no one sees. And I think it's a good thing to assess your conduct by asking the question, am I simply motivated in service to the body by that which others can observe? Or am I mostly motivated by a heart that's filled with the Spirit of God and desperate to honor Christ and deeply interested in ministering to the body in ways that maybe no one this side of eternity will ever know about. That's maybe the better way to judge your own heart. It's hard for us to judge our own hearts. Many times we're inclined to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. That's why you need objective observation from others, and so do I. Maybe not a bad idea to get some counsel, some input from someone that you trust in the body of Christ to help you assess the degree to which you're storing up treasure in heaven versus the degree to which you're storing it up on earth. This is one effort at that this morning. As we look at God's word and we discuss what it means to die so that you will live, it's a little easier for us to pursue that mindset in the areas that others can see than it is to do that in the areas where others don't see. Let's look at our text. We'll read it, and then we'll 
go back through it together. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, we pause for a moment to communicate with you in light of the fact that you have communicated with us. We look to you asking that you would give us honest, accurate interpretation, understanding of your word so that we would obey it, that your glory would be on display and that our good, our good would come of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, lose your life and gain Jesus. The passage says, then Jesus told his disciples. So he's speaking specifically to those that he is investing in, in real life. They are following him. They are spending time with him. And he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. This is a full-scale refusal to recognize self. That's what the idea of self-denial is. So this manner of rejecting self is followed by a further effort to do just that by ensuring that if I'm tempted to serve myself, that that temptation would be much weaker because I actually am dead. Because he says, and take up his cross. In other words, take up death. Willingly follow Jesus which would certainly lead to suffering unto death. It would certainly lead to suffering unto death in a Roman culture where Christians are under attack. In their day, this was far more realistic in terms of practical application in a physical sense. But it's every bit as true for you and me in the spiritual sense. What we're being called to is to deny self. But that doesn't mean that you don't get what you want. Because in a true self-denial, as we sang this morning, he will hold you fast. Whom does he hold fast? Those who deny self. Those who take up his cross. The death sentence. And those who follow Jesus. Matthew 10, 38 says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You say, wait a minute, aren't we all not worthy of him? Yeah, but that's obviously not what he's talking about when the fact is that we are all not worthy of him. What he's saying is that the person who doesn't take up his cross, the person who doesn't engage in this self-denial, this willingness to die to self, to die to the flesh, to die to sin, to die to unrighteousness, the person who is not willing to do that is not in him. He's not associated with him. He's not baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's not a Christian. 
What, though, does following Jesus look like? He, he says, you're, they're to follow me. Those who would come after me, they would deny self, take up his cross, and follow him. What does that look like? In the first century, it meant literally walking in his footsteps behind him or beside him, never in front of him, and living a life with him. Of course, for the original disciples, it meant tactile involvement with Jesus. Physically, literally being with him. But as disciples, they became apostles upon whom the church was built in the pattern of the prophets and along with evangelists and pastor teachers, shepherds. So denying self meant abandoning your life as it was in the first century. Taking up your cross meant taking on the death sentence that following Jesus initiates. And following him meant literally physically walking with him as he taught scripture, evangelizing the lost and displaying in his human prayer life a dependence upon his father. In his human love exhibited for people, displayed in how he treated them with grace, mercy, patience, and truth. With that, he not only revealed what following him looks like, he called them to follow him so that upon their maturing, spirit-filled lives, in his physical absence, the church would be established. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church was founded upon the apostles and the prophets. That's why we don't have apostles and prophets today. They served their purpose, much like the sign gifts served their purpose in the first century. Today, though, to follow him means faithful involvement in that church. The church that the disciples who became apostles eventually established in the first century. You don't walk physically with Jesus. You don't have that tactile interaction with him. You don't need it. It's not God's current dispensation. The current dispensation is the church. You need the body of Christ. The person who claims to know Christ and wants nothing to do with the body of Christ doesn't know the Christ of the Bible. Many think they do. You must, by the guidance of God the Spirit, follow him by following those who follow him. That's what it means to follow him. Trusting the Spirit of God as we understand him from his word. You cannot physically follow the incarnate God-man from sermon to sermon, ministry to ministry, person to person. But you must follow God the Spirit whom Jesus said would come in his absence, and he did. And he indwells every believer. And indwelling every believer, he gives wisdom to apply the exclusive truth that we get from his word. That's what it means to follow him. You must follow him by worshiping him in spirit and truth, by drinking from his word, because he is not physically here. And he said to the woman at the well in John 4, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So yet, while she was beginning to understand some of what he was saying, she didn't fully understand it, thinking that he was still talking about physical water. The point was that the water that comes from the granting of eternal life is such that you will never need to be granted eternal life again. But you will continue to drink from the river of truth that God's word will always be exactly what you need to apply the reality of having been granted eternal life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must follow him by speaking the truth in love. Because according to Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. You need the body of Christ. To follow Jesus means that you are working in proper working order, according to Paul, with the body of Christ. That's the only way it works. You cannot be engaged in legitimate Christian, biblical, spirit-filled Christianity by listening to a sermon on the internet. It might supplement your growth. You must follow him by receiving the preaching of his word with fullness of heart and your best attentiveness in your local church, in your local church, not primarily with a famous preacher's CD. He is not your pastor. If you're more willing to give someone a book written by a Christian author you don't personally know, or direct them to a website or refer them to a particular system of theology, then you are to nurture their willingness to receive the word in their own local body. You're actually halting that person's spiritual growth rather than nurturing it. To follow Jesus means to be grafted in and engaged in a local body. All the wonderful teaching to which we have quick access on the internet and in great books should take a distant second place in your efforts to cultivate growth in yourself and others. It is in the local body by the power of the Spirit where you grow primarily. Now, if you're wondering why in the world someone you've been trying to help grow spiritually is not growing spiritually and all your efforts have been to give them CDs of someone they don't even know, it could be that you have contributed to their faithlessness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's for the common good. Can you really be engaged in that which is done for the common good of the universal church? No, first of all, because a whole lot of them are in heaven. 
but also because you're never going to really have a legitimate conversation with them and don't think that your Facebook interaction with someone in Louisiana counts because it doesn't. It might supplement their growth. It might supplement your growth, but it's not primarily biblical Christianity. Here at the Anchor, while our many ministries are vibrant and running well and continuing to thrive, effectively reaching believers with effective equipping and effective evangelistic impact, we currently have deficiencies in many ministry areas. To follow Jesus could mean that that prompting you have experienced might actually be a reminder that your giftedness could apply in some of those areas. We have a good number of very skilled and faithful men working in our facilities ministry, but we need more. We all, but we also need younger men to serve and seek how they might assist those who've been working hard in this ministry and learn from them as the next generation of deacons. We need help on our security team. Our parking lot is full. We need help there. We have folks who faithfully do everything they can to ensure our safety and our security, but we need help there. As you may have observed, we need help on the music team. You say, man, our music ministry is awesome. Yeah. But ask any one of those folks if they wouldn't like a break from time to time. Now, maybe some will say, no, I like being up there every Sunday, but it's impossible that the same people week in and week out can do what they would otherwise do if they were on a rotation. Maybe you're gifted musically and you're thinking, you know, I can't do that every Sunday. We don't want you to. We want you to get in a rotation. The more people we have, the lighter the work and the more opportunities for you to sit in the worship service and enjoy the music ministry of others. Maybe you're gifted to teach and you're just wondering when in the world someone's going to ask you to teach. But maybe you're not involved in those venues where teaching is cultivated. What is your faithfulness like in our discipleship ministry, in our family groups? Are you growing such that your family group shepherd is assessing you and saying, hey, there's somebody who knows how to communicate theology well. We need to ask that person to minister to someone else. Is your faithfulness such that people are going to notice and they're going to come to you and say, you know, you're gifted there, or are you, on the other hand, at times tempted to clamor for some sort of role that you haven't proven yourself in yet because you haven't really served in that way but you want somebody to affirm you in that area see we need help in many areas we need help in iron men you know we have a handful of men that i can call and say hey will you teach in a couple weeks need more men to be doing that there's a process by which that comes about Ultimately, every man ought to be engaged in teaching in some capacity, whether it's in the privacy of his own home or up here preaching to the congregation. We need the same in WOW. We have a significant number of godly, faithful, leading women who are leading others, but we need more. We need people helping in 412 with the children and 116 with the junior high and high school students. We could use more help in Dulos and the young adult ministry. We're going to need a lot of help in Vacation Bible School. Many of you find that as that opportunity to jump in and really get used well. 
encourage you to be thinking about that. That's coming up in August. As you follow Jesus, as you deny self, recognize that denial of self does not mean a lack of joy. It means a redefinition of joy, that you're starting to think like God thinks about what real joy is, and you're beginning to implement your giftedness in such a way that results not only in your own joy, but the joy of others. And pretty soon people are saying, hey, thank you for that ministry to God, that ministry to me, that ministry to others. The Lord's using you. If you're not hearing that, it's time for you to start doing that which is necessary to hear that. Not for the sake of hearing it, but for the sake of it being true. In verse 25, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is poetic speech, but it is not at all difficult to understand what Jesus is saying. Keep your life as your own for now and lose your soul forever. Think of your life as yours. And rest assured, your pseudo-ownership will expire when you stop breathing. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Keep your life as your own for now and lose your soul forever. Give up your life now and keep your soul forever. Look at the grammar in this passage. Look at it with me. Would save, will lose. Those who subjectively, it's a subjective statement. Those who would save, in other words, you're not going to save your life. Those who would do that, those who would endeavor to hang on or keep or save their own lives are going to lose it, guaranteed. But the one who actually loses his life will find it. The one who considers his life to be under the ownership of Jesus Christ, who bought the believer with a price, the price of his life that took place in one moment, right? It took place on the cross, not throughout history thereafter where, okay, I'll take him, I'll take him, I'll take him. He's choosing me, oh, I'll take him. He's living a good life, I'll take him. None of that. He, God, the Father, in eternity past, chose. Jesus actuated that on the cross. He purchased the elect on the cross, Acts 20, verse 28, tells us that we were bought with God's blood. Who? The church. The church was bought with a price. Really, when relinquishing what you thought was ownership of your life, you gain Jesus, who secures your soul forever. But this is not the loss of life as we naturally think of it. He's not speaking of dying physically, but dying spiritually to all that is wicked. Willingly and passionately turning your back on the things that you once thought to be great treasure. You're denying all that fulfills sinful lust. All that salves the conscience. All that feeds the flesh. All that swindles the soul. You're abandoning that. You're rejecting that. You're saying no to that. You're denying self. You're denying selfishness. And you gain Jesus. As long as you are convinced that your life is yours, you'll be above giving sacrificially and faithfully. You will pick and choose which ministries are beneath you. And you will pick and choose which people are beneath you. 
While you're dead to self, every ministry opportunity is an honor. Every person is an honorable use of your time. And every ministry opportunity is an honor to invest in with God's money, which he has given you to manage and store it up in heaven. If you've lost your life to find it, you will cling to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10, which says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Always carrying the death of Jesus. Always remembering that his death for those for whom he died results in their death, that they die to self. The one who refuses to die to self wants nothing to do with this concept. He wants his life to be his own. I don't need counsel. I don't need discipleship. I don't really need the body. I don't need to minister to them. I don't need them to minister to me. I got it. I've got it under control. And ultimately, that will result in one of two things. Either his being humbled by the reality that he doesn't have it under control, and he will repent of that pattern. He will find joy in the body of Christ, or he will maintain that and die in his sins. One or the other will certainly come to pass. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 4.11 to say, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Does that make sense? What's he saying? The life of Jesus, having experienced the death of Jesus, which results in the death of those for whom he died, the life of Jesus is manifest in the temporary, earthly, mortal flesh of the believer in whom the Spirit dwells. So you act like Jesus. So you care about people. You care about the fact that their giftedness means that there is a necessity for their growth, that they have the privilege to minister to you when you have needs. You understand this interdependence of the body of Christ and it's illustrated in your own physical body, which you well understand. And you engage that. You see, you'll want to invest all you have. And for what? In exchange for your soul. Now, the idea is not that you give everything and you earn your soul back in heaven. The point is that for the one whose soul is destined for heaven, he recognizes that everything he has is not worth hanging on to. And so therefore he is willing to recognize that it's all God's and I'm going to use every ounce of it for his glory, for ministry to the body, and for the evangelism of the lost. That's the exchange. Verse 26 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, losing your earthly life, your will, yourself, really denying self and taking up the death sentence to be a follower of Christ is to receive Jesus. It is a trade. It is an exchange. When you experience the joy of losing your life and gaining Jesus you gain the certain security of knowing that your soul is secured forever in heaven. And you will want to store up treasure there. Lose your life and gain Jesus. And when you gain Jesus, you gain your soul. Your old life is crucified and no longer the essence of your passions. 
But instead, as a new creature, you long for his glory and that which is actually best for you, not that which felt best for you, but really wasn't. You embrace that which is good and pure and edifying and praiseworthy, and you reject that which only brings strife and discord and disharmony and deceit and destruction. You're willing to reject those things that you prefer, but you know are not best and create discord in your life. You're willing to defer to believers. You're far more concerned about avoiding causing them to stumble than you are about maintaining that preference. You desire to defer to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your spouse's desire suddenly becomes much more important than your own. You long to discipline your children with grace for their good rather than overlooking their sin out of convenience and being too tired to address it. While your life and all its fleshly passions is set aside, the life of Christ becomes your all in all. He becomes your every desire. Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified. I've been executed. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not generically giving himself for anybody who might choose him, but for me. The result of him dying, giving his life for me is that I will die and give my life for him. I die, I gain Jesus, I gain my soul I find it. Again, back to the grammar. Those who would save their lives. Those who think they could save their lives. Will lose them. But those who lose their lives will find them. You get the idea there in the grammar? You find it. You didn't ever really have your life. You thought you did. You acted as if you were the owner. You realize you never were. You find out, my word, I've been bought with a price. God is clearly the owner of my life. So I'm going to operate as if he is because now I've actually found my life by God's grace. You embrace that which is good. While your life and all its fleshly passions is set aside, the life of Christ truly becomes your everything. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. See? Following Jesus. Jesus. When's the last time you tried to follow someone without looking at them? Looking to them. It doesn't work. You're looking to the person of Christ. You're examining scripture. You're sitting under sound teaching. You're reading the right books. You're going to the right people. You're examining truth so that you will understand who the historical biblical Jesus is rather than the one that you learned about in a movie or from TBN. 
And so you begin to increasingly understand this black and white separation that the Apostle John speaks of with such concision, it's impossible to miss it. In 1 John 3, verse 10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God. What common catchphrase does that alone destroy? The idea that, well, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. That's between him and the Lord. Let's read it again. By this, it is evident. The NES says, it is obvious who are the children of God. And this is a very concise expression of everything we've been talking about in Matthew. And... Who are the children of the devil? It is obvious. Say, well, it's not my business to judge. Judge not. Read the whole passage there in Matthew 7. Read the whole passage because Jesus is calling you to judge, not condemn. He is calling you to assess the lives of others such that you will abstain from giving that which is holy to dogs. That requires judgment requires an assessment. At some point, you would say, wow, all my ministry efforts with this person, bringing the word, bringing counsel, and he or she continues to live in unrepentant, Christ-rejecting sin. There comes a time where I must stop giving, as Jesus has said, that which is holy to the term he uses, dogs. Those who act like dogs in trampling upon the gospel. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now you may have come here today with a very cultural Christianity, which you're very comfortable and happy with, but this word from John the Apostle utterly obliterates all that nonsense. It's painful, I know. It's offensive. I don't believe that. It's not the God I believe. The truth is there is this massive Mack truck-sized separation between believers and unbelievers. So what's your role? Your, your role is to equip believers to win the unbelievers. And the judgment is not condemnation. It is by no means we're better than you. Quite the opposite. It is to say that it is utterly and completely God's grace and his mercy that caused me to be reconciled to the Father through the Son. It's his mercy and it's his grace. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. I'm not better than you. But that's often the accusation from those who believe that salvation is not by grace alone. That man had something to do with it. That's often the accusation. Well, it seems like you think, you know, you're... Elite. Elite and elect are two totally different concepts. The elect are those who have received God's grace out of his mercy. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. He's not choosing favorites. He's not choosing those who act better than others. It's by his sovereign decree, and it pleased him to exhibit that, the word says. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is your treasure in the body? Is it in the body of Christ? 
You're doing what you're doing for the better good of the body, for the sake of the equipping of the body, that God's glory would be on display in the moment, but it would also be on display heretofore. The people would see us as a local body who ministers to people in an effective way. You're storing up your treasure in heaven by pouring into those who are storing up their treasure in heaven. Occasionally, Kimberly and I will do a little house cleaning, get rid of a few things. I got home last night, and the appearance was that our house had been completely remodeled. And I said, whoa, you've been working today. She works every day really hard. But it was obvious. You could see it. The furniture was moved. We had different furniture that we received as a gift from someone. Furniture was in the garage that we're giving to others. That's how it kind of works. There's this revolving door of stuff that we have. Uh, We find someone else who needs a blessing. We have experienced many blessings from many of you and others who have given us things that you no longer need, that we obviously need. We eventually pass it on to somebody else. I don't know how many children in our church have worn clothes that we bought for Dawson when he was, you know, a baby, but it's a an amazing cycle, and we've experienced the blessing of clothes that you bought for your children when they were first born, and that's how it should work. You're investing in heaven when you do that. And more and more and more, I look in our garage, and I think, we don't need that. And I remember days when I thought, but we might. (laughs) How many of you know what a steering wheel puller is, a tool? Raise your hand. Some of you know. Yeah, okay. It's obvious it pulls the steering wheel. So you have to have the right tool for that. I had a Jeep in the 90s, and I um, needed to pull the steering wheel out to replace my ignition switch. You can't replace the ignition switch without the steering wheel coming off. So I paid probably back then a lot of money for a steering wheel puller. I pulled it off. I put it in my toolbox, and I've never touched it since except when I rearranged my tools in my toolbox but I might need that one day. Now, that's not the best example because it's not really in the way. But let me just tell you, if you need a steering wheel puller for um, an 87 Jeep CJ7, it's yours. Guys, I'm not telling you to give your tools away. Those are hard to replace. But I am telling you, if somebody has a tool that they need, give it to them. Give it to them and trust that the Lord's going to replace it with what you need in the future. I'm looking at all this stuff in our garage last night, and I walked down and said, hey, babe, um, you know, um, it's a lot of stuff. She said, yeah, but God's going to give us what we need when we need it. And I said, you're right. You should probably preach tomorrow. (laughs) Point number two. As one who has lost his life and gained Jesus, give everything and gain eternal reward. Give it all away. Now, I don't mean go home and sell it all and give all the liquidation to the poor. The point of that passage was to address the hyperbolic dishonesty of the rich young man who said he's obeyed the whole law. I will say this to you. I will say this to you. If you would say to me, you know what? I've never sinned. I've never really violated the law of God. Then I would say, go home and sell everything. (laughs) Because that's the whole deal that Jesus was implementing in that moment. Why? 
because he was unwilling to be honest about his life, Jesus called him to the impossible in light of the fact that he was stating the impossible. No one has fully obeyed the law. You think you can fool Jesus? He tried. Jesus said, fine, that's how we're going to play. Sell all your possessions, rich, young man. He's got three things working against him there in terms of being tempted to be materialistic. He was rich, he was young, and he was a man. Well, sell it all then. Because if you're not willing to follow the rules of Scripture, then let's go beyond that. Let's talk about the reality of how salvation is actually impossible. Yet God does the impossible, right? As one who has lost his life and gained Jesus. Point number two, give everything and gain eternal reward. Which, by the way, you cannot lose. Verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John 5, verse 22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus will come in judgment. He never was a limp-wristed weakling, but he came as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion, and he will judge all. He will judge the quick and the dead. He will judge the believing and the unbelieving. He will judge you. And you say, no, 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 man, I'm good. I, I know Jesus, and everything's going to be fine in heaven. He will judge your deeds. You, that believer who's known Christ and served him and his church for 30-plus years, you, that brand-new believer who's known him for six weeks, is going to judge your deeds. Your reward in heaven is directly commensurate your deeds. It's important. John 5, 28 says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Matthew 10, 40 says, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking to believers. You get the point? When you are operating as a faithful believer, those who receive you are receiving Jesus. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, you know, not just giving a cup of cold water to that guy that you run into on the way into the restaurant who's asking if you can give him a dollar. But those who are disciples, those who are engaging in discipleship, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The implication is that the one who does things like that, but not in the context of discipleship, will lose that reward. There is no reward for that. The one who does this with the wrong heart attitude, begrudgingly, yeah, I'll do it, I agreed to do it, but I don't really want to go down there and do that, that's not a reward you will keep. 
Are you engaged passionately in the context of discipleship? That you're willing to give what you have to those who have a need? Is your life about you? Or is it about others? James says in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can I just be really, really bold for a moment and say, if you are not serving sacrificially, effectively, faithfully in the body of Christ, stop telling people you are a Christian. Stop. And throw yourself into the self-denying, Christ-magnifying, God-loving obedience to him that's effective and then start telling people you're a Christian. You know those handful of times where Jesus told the disciples, don't tell anybody. Why? They weren't ready to carry the message effectively. They would have messed it up, and in many cases they did. Don't be the one who runs around telling people how great Jesus is while you're spending most of your time and all of your resources, perhaps, on things that have nothing to do with Christ and his church. That's not only a bad testimony, you are sealing their deception. Can that faith save him? The faith without works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Do you serve the body in such a way that you know the body? Do you know the people in your family group? Do you know them? Do you ask them, how are you doing, not just generically? How is your commitment to giving? How is your commitment to serving? How is your commitment to receiving correction? How is your commitment to discipleship? Are you able? Do you have that platform with 8, 10, 15 people? Or maybe just one? I know many of you do. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the doctrine of predestination. Man, I don't really like people, though. Man, (laughs) That's not unusual. So you don't really love that doctrine, then. You love knowing that doctrine if you're that person. People who love theology but don't love Christ and don't love people, don't love God, they don't really love the theology. They love the ability to talk about the theology. See, when he comes and judges, he will judge our deeds. Let me ask you from here forward, how will your deeds be judged? Are you storing up treasure in heaven or on earth? Are you serving, giving, teaching, counseling, praying, evangelizing, restraining your lips, loving your children, correcting your brother, receiving correction from your brother? Are you worshiping Jesus? This collective reality of what it means to be faithful to Christ. Is there a legitimate devotion to all the areas of Christian faithfulness? All the areas. Not perfection, not a perfect balance, but all the areas of devotion to Jesus Christ, all the disciplines of the Christian faith. A real heartfelt devotion, doing all that you do for God's glory. If you feel that your lack of giving is compensated by your service, then you overvalue your service. 
How is the man who does a lot of work around his house compensating for not providing money for his children's food and clothing? If your public service is something that you're easily committed to, but your private service in giving is something that you're holding back on, question your heart. That should be, and in fact is, suspect. It's not necessary that it be private. There's no command that it be private. The command is that it be personal. You determine in your heart what to give. There's no indication anywhere that it should be private. The call in 2 Corinthians 9 is that it be personal. I'm not telling you to make it public across the board, but I'm saying if, if you struggle in this area, you know who loses? You. You. You're not storing up your treasure in heaven. You're the one that doesn't experience the blessing now, but ultimately is giving up the eternal blessing in heaven. It's interesting that at this point where, you know, we really, and we're going to talk more and more about this. We're going to go through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in a few weeks. It's interesting that there are those who will simply turn off when this subject is brought up because they have an American mindset about money. See, when your private giving is faithful, sacrificial, joyous, generous, according to how the Lord has prospered you, then your public service can be better assessed. If you're only willing to do that which is visible, then you're really violating Colossians 3 where we're told to do your work as unto the Lord, not with eye service. See, when the new car with a bigger house or the video habit forces a decrease in your giving, you have an idol. When your car payment is more than your giving, you have an idol. When your retirement contributions, right, on and on and on and on. What's the point? The point is, if you're storing up treasure on earth and not storing it up in heaven, your treasure is on earth. It's hard to know entirely how to assess this. It's not so mathematic. That's why you need counsel. That's why you need someone, you know, perhaps a godly Christian who's been faithful in this area for some time. I asked Steve Burton to teach the treasure principle a couple Saturdays ago because I know Steve is faithful. I know Steve is faithful. I know he's storing his treasure up in heaven. So when you're laying up earthly treasures is greater than your laying up of eternal treasure, you're clearly violating this command. When your storing up of eternal treasure is greater this mindset of storing up treasure in heaven has not taken ownership of you. You have not taken ownership of it. If your giving is greater than your car payment, you might be headed in the right direction. Your giving is pitiful, but your involvement with the body is consistent. Every time you're around the body, you're pretending to be faithful. You know that? 
This should be a moment of concrete discovery for you that you fear man and you do not fear God. Your obedience is restricted to that which man can see and has not penetrated that which God knows. It's treasonous to participate in the body of Christ while being uninvolved in the ministry of giving. I'll give you an example. The young person gets that first job, first paycheck, starts spending it on food, Starbucks, better car. Somewhere along the line, he missed the teaching, probably because he wasn't engaged in discipleship. Or if he was, he ignored everything he heard about storing up treasure in heaven. Pretty soon he got into a rhythm. Pretty soon he's 25. And he's 35, and he's got kids, and he says, where are we ever going to squeeze money out of this? We need it in all these areas. If we start giving 10%, where are we going to get $500 a month? See, that's the wrong question. The right question is, where have we been withholding from God and mismanaging his resources? Why 10%? Because it's a great place to start. Mathematically, it's easy to get your arms around. In the Old Testament, when 10% was required, it made it easy for those assessing it to assess it. You don't need to get 10%. The whole point of me bringing up 10% is to say it's a great starting place, but you don't have to do that. It would be legalistic for me to indicate that you should. Some might say, you don't understand. We just don't have enough money to give to the Lord. I would say you don't understand that the reason you don't have more money than you do is because you don't give to the Lord. God's withholding blessing from you because you are disobeying him. If your income and your giving records were made public, would it be a good standard for the body of Christ to follow? You say, it's my income. But according to Paul, it is the measure by which the Lord has prospered you and you are to give commensurately. You are to give according to how he has prospered you. Luke 16 verse 10 says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. That's an axiomatic truth, but Jesus says it very concisely so we understand it. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? You see the idea there? If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in other words, that which you get from your employer, then who would trust you with treasure in heaven? You've got to be faithful with how God has prospered you. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, be honest with yourself. I'm not asking you to tell me. Be honest with yourself and seek counsel from someone to help you out of this disaster. Ask the question, am I serving God or am I serving money? You can't serve both. See, it's the person who gives faithfully to the church who gives faithfully to those who have needs. You know, the one that you see given 20 bucks here and there, hey, you need some help, I can help you with that, you give 500 bucks to somebody. That's the person who's already budgeting well and giving faithfully to the church in most cases. 
But this takes a recalibration that's a big deal of work in many cases because we're talking decades worth of either misunderstanding or disobedience or a combination of both. But it starts with a bold, Christ-magnifying, self-denying, God-fearing, soul-loving heart attitude. Turning a ship around is a substantial endeavor, but when the ship has taken on a ship full of water, it's much more difficult. When you've got some complaint about someone else while you're not giving faithfully, you have no sensitivity to the necessary impact of shame on your hypocrisy. All your service is suspect if your heart for giving is dwarfed by your external service. Read Colossians 3. You may as well be running around telling people that you fast twice a week. A recalibration of this magnitude takes time. You see, beloved, you and I measure our treasure by what we give to eternity. We measure our appreciation for eternal life by how we store up treasure in heaven. So if you're making a trade hoping that the more you give, the more likely you will gain your soul, you've got this wrong. The idea is because you have gained your soul out of appreciation, out of gratitude, out of hope for effective ministry, you want to give to effective ministry. See, you give what you cannot ultimately keep because you know that the exchange will be reward in heaven. There is an exchange, but that exchange really has already been made. When you've been granted your soul by the gracious Savior, you realize you're going to spend eternity in heaven, and you want those treasures to be with you for that eternity. You don't care about what's left in your garage. In fact, you do care a little bit because you want to liquidate it to be able to give eternally. Verse 28 says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now be aware that Jesus is talking about two different events here. He's just spoken of his second coming where he will return and judge all. Here he's talking about the transfiguration. He says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And they did. Matthew 17, verse 1 says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by himself. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I half expect that Jesus looked at him and said, what? (laughs) Although he probably didn't because he is very gracious and merciful. Peter was not Peter whom he would become. The man of wisdom, the man of grace, the man of faithfulness. 
it says he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him when the disciples heard this they fell on their faces and were terrified but Jesus came and touched them saying rise and have no fear and when they lifted up their eyes they saw no one but Jesus only Peter, James and John saw the son of man come in his glory They saw him in the glorified state, which you and I will enjoy forever in heaven, but they experienced it here on earth. And so all their works, all that they had done, all their investment in heaven up to that point, and certainly thereafter could be that much more appreciated. Peter, as you know, refers to this in his discourse on the sufficiency of Scripture in 2 Peter 1. This led to a passion for the word of Christ. Not experience on earth with Christ, but the word of Christ. While we saw Peter's focus drift from a heavenly eternal perspective that would have led him to store up his treasure in heaven rather than on earth, he is not the only guilty party. Peter is not the only one who went wayward among the disciples. James and John, after observing Peter being resoundingly rebuked and much more after witnessing Jesus' transfiguration, became so full of themselves while they're at least beginning to think eternally, their earthly pride grossly skewed their thoughts about the eternal. And so in chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 1, we read, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you think, you know, he just told you he's going to die. The passage goes on. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that childlike faith that says, it's not my stuff anyway. May as well give it to those who have need. May as well liquidate you know, my hoarding efforts so that I've actually got more to be able to give. James and John's mother was in on it. Chapter 20, verse 17 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Shocking. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Down in verse 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He there is calling them to serve. He's calling them to store up their treasure in heaven. You know that Peter's denial was predicted. Jesus predicted it. You know that Judas' rejection of the faith was predicted. But you see a contrast between these two men. Peter, misguided as he was, was willing to give his own life. Judas 
on the other hand, was willing to actually take Jesus' life for his own preservation and for 30 pieces of silver. You remember his words? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? How would this turn out for Judas? He hanged himself. Judas was a betrayer. How did it turn out for Peter? Resulted in humility. 2 Peter 3.15 says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. You know that Peter was publicly rebuked by Paul. And here in Scripture, Peter praises Paul. It's humble. While Peter misused the authority given him directly by Christ, his self-denial led to a more consistent, more faithful taking up of the cross and following Jesus. Legitimate self-denial always leads to eternal glory. Legitimate self-denial always leads to eternal glory. This is why Peter could say in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see, the prideful person says, it's my money. How dare you talk to me about 10%? The humble man says, none of it's mine. How can you help me get to 13 or 20%? How can you help me store up all my treasure in heaven. Well, what do you do? What do you do with this? I'll give you three things to do. Number one, acknowledge your faithfulness and your faithlessness. You know, to the degree that these words, by the power of the Spirit of God, bring legitimate encouragement to your heart, rejoice. Praise God that you've been faithful in this area. By the way, faithfulness doesn't look exactly the same for you than it does someone else in terms of how much you do. God will judge all your deeds. Christ will judge all your deeds. And know that when he judges your faithfulness, it will be a day of rejoicing. But while you acknowledge your faithfulness, acknowledge your faithlessness. You can't compartmentalize sin. You can't compartmentalize the Christian life. You can't say, well, I'm doing well in this area, therefore to abandon this area is okay. It all balances out. No. You violate one measure of the law, you violate it all, according to James. Number two, confess and forsake your faithlessness. Confess it. Forsake it. Run from it. Don't don't go this alone. Don't do that. You not only need accountability, which is hugely helpful, you need wisdom. You need counsel from Scripture. You know, just as you and I have failed in our endeavor to follow Jesus, so did the original disciples who became apostles. The reliable Christian tradition tells us that although Peter denied Jesus in his humility, in his devotion 
to Christ, in his willingness to deny self, to take up his cross and follow him, he refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior and insisted upon being crucified upside down. Much more important is Peter's life as recorded in Scripture. This is a man who denied Christ, but ultimately showed himself to be faithful to Christ. So what do you do? Assess your life with godly counsel. Be encouraged where you should be. And I mean that. I mean really, really rejoice when you look back on your deeds over the last year, or the last 10 years, or the last six weeks, and you say, you know what? God's changing me. I love how Randy Alcorn talks about investing in that which you want to be committed to. You want to be invested in missions? You want to be committed to it? Then put your money there. You want to be committed to the church of Christ? Put your money there. Put your resources there. Trust the Lord that what you have done with a heart attitude of love for him and love for people is treasure stored up in heaven. And pursue that. Excel still more. Persevere. Praise God that he's given you that hunger in your heart to do that. Begin by rejoicing and then move forward with saying, Lord, how can I be a better follower of Christ? Father, with great joy, we have looked at your word this morning and we ask you that you'd continue to give us much wisdom as we think about the fact that Christ will judge our deeds. We ask that you would help us to be faithful to you as we experience the joy of giving, but knowing that we can look forward to gaining corresponding eternal reward that we will not ever see slip away. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.